RX. I'm Kurt Anderson, and this is the Studio 360 Podcast. If I were to make a list of my, I don't know, 50 living cultural heroes, David Byrne would be on it. I fell for him in the late 70s, of course, when he was the front man for Talking Heads. And then I became more of a fanboy as his career evolved. Music producer, music curator, visual artist, biking activist, lecturer, filmmaker, theater maker. Now he's kind of blending most of those things together from his resume and staging it and starring in it on Broadway. His show American Utopia opens in New York City this month. It features songs from a new album called American Utopia, as well as Talking Heads songs, plus a a kind of story and choreography and other assorted bits of theater. My Talking Heads almanac tells me there's another milestone coming up soon in October. The 9th is the 35th anniversary of Stop Making Sense, the terrific concert film directed by Jonathan Demme. I have spoken with David Byrne a couple of times on Studio 360, most recently in 2012 when he and Talking Heads released a DVD set called Chronology, which was a collection of the band's live performances, audio and video, all the way back to 1975. David Byrne, welcome. Hi, good to be here. Were you surprised uh, at the popularity that you had, and that 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 then this success that came out of this arty little downtown band. Yes and no. To be well, I'm interested in the no. Uh, okay, you're interested in the no. All right. So uh, I have to be sort of immodest and say that, like a lot of other bands, artists, everything else, at any period, really, you tend to think that. Um, the pervasive stuff around you is crap. And you and your friends are doing the real stuff. We're doing the real stuff. And optimistically, one might think, since we're doing the real stuff and it it has real soul and passion and, and, and it's of its moment, it represents its moment, and so, immodestly, you think, of course, things are just going to fall into your lap because you're doing something that that's, has some truth to it. Uh, that certainly doesn't always happen. No. There is a montage on this DVD that is just you introducing a bunch of songs and looking so embarrassed and awkward. Uh, it, it almost hurts to watch, and I'm going to force you to watch it here with me for a moment. <laughs> <laughs> this, this song was written a, a long time. From March 1976. The name of this song is Stay Hungry. The name of this song is, uh, we call it In My Heart. This song was written more or less around the same <laughs> period as they say. It's as though you're making fun of your own awkward youthful self. <laughs> well, yes, in putting together this montage, yes, it's kind of acknowledging this is a person who is profoundly uncomfortable uh, addressing an audience 
and yet puts himself in that position. And and, and not, as long as we're talking about him in the third him. person, why <laughs> yes. did he do that as, as this uncomfortable 23, 24-year-old? Uh, um, <laughs> yes, if I can refer to my earlier self as in the third person, I think he did, did that because he um, he had to. There was this means of communication that was being a performer and writing songs and singing them was a way of kind of being present to other people, not just girls, uh-huh. but other people in general, and uh, maybe not exactly having a conversation, but at least... Saying what you felt and thought. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, here is one of those uh, performances from 35 years ago. I want to play that. This is uh, I'm Not In Love. We are two strangers. We might never have met. We could talk forever. I understand what you said, but I'm not in love. What does it take to fall in love? Do people really Do people really fall in love is such a great question, especially for a 22-year-old boy. Sorry for laughing. Um, it really, yeah, I, maybe you, you and the listeners can tell I'm a little bit more comfortable uh, in myself and with other people now. But uh, No, you're a very clubbable man now. <laughs> yes. But uh, yes, I was just asking all the most super obvious questions. Why do humans, people, we do this. And how does that work? It was all just kind of, can I figure this out? Yeah. You've said, I've seen it written that you said, have said since that maybe you had Asperger's syndrome, which wasn't called that then. Do you think it would have made a difference in your being, in your life, in your behavior, if you'd had a diagnosis, something to call it back then? I don't, I don't see how it would have. I don't, uh, if indeed I, did have was somewhere along that spectrum. I was pretty relatively along the fairly functioning. Clearly, you started a band. I started a band. I could actually get together with other band people and do it. I wasn't like so isolated that I could only stay in my room and work with a computer, but those computers sort of didn't exist then. Exactly. Yeah, you kind of felt like I just have to, I have to figure out a way to make, to fit in somehow. Yeah. Uh, And I don't, might not be like everyone else. Nobody is. Right. But I have to figure that out. Instead of kind of having a million different labels for what my various kind of quirks might be. Did you have favorite songs then? Do you have favorite ones? And are they the same as your favorites now? Some of them probably are. Some of them probably are still my favorites. They were not always the popular favorites. There was one I liked called New Feeling. It's a little bit funky, but kind of stiff sounding. And but it to me it was to me it successfully didn't quite sound like much else. A little bit funky, but stiff sounding. Could apply to lots of your songs. <laughs> it's going to be a lot of them. This is from an old interview when you were young uh, that's on this new DVD chronology. I want to play it. I feel like I try to be a very moral person. I believe a lot of those moral cliches, like two wrongs don't make a right, and there's no such thing as a free lunch. And uh, 
People, I think, at the time uh, looked at that thinking, oh, he's some kind of Andy Warhol guy. He's not really serious about this. But it seems as though you really were serious and just <laughs> speaking straightforwardly. Yes, that was not, that was not an act. Uh, I might have been very uncomfortable speaking to the camera and saying that to, to the extent where it looks like I was performing or being ironic or whatever, but I wasn't. I was really trying to understand what is it that I do believe? What's guiding my behavior? And has, has another 30 years of life confirmed the, the, that basic understanding of right living? For the most part, yeah. For the most part, I think we're kind of inundated or, or inoculated with those kind of things early on, and we kind of are stuck with them. Yeah. You released a record with another musical hero of mine, Brian Eno, called Everything That Happens Will Happen Today. And I want to play uh, the title track off that album. It also sounds to me like a, a Beatles song, but what, what, is, what is that song about? I think that's a 9-11 song. Um, there's talks about explosions on the road and uh, asking you know, if your brother's all right. But oddly enough, in that it was came out of that time and that era when uh, politically here, I was feeling kind of pretty angry and alienated. These songs came out that were kind of positive alternatives to that. And this song didn't didn't make it to this record for some years after 9-11. So maybe you, by that time you had come to some kind of reconciliation? Yeah, I think it took, took a while to kind of process that, to get past kind of the initial anger and frustration and confusion and, and then kind of think about, you know, what our lives are about and what, what matters. Um, you've got a book called How Music Works, which is a nicely uh, grand and, and straightforward-seeming title. What, what is it going to be? Yeah, the title's a little bit exaggerated, but not exactly. Some things I've kind of talked about or written about before. So the one, there's one chapter about music business, um, how, how it's changed over the years, how the various ways that uh, an emerging artist can get their stuff out there. That's interesting. And, and nitty-gritty. Yeah, it's real nitty-gritty, and there's pie charts and numbers and how many records get sold and how much you get if you do this and how, what your income will be and all that kind of thing. And then there's other ones that are a little more esoteric. There's one about kind of music, music of the spheres and Pythagoras and that music was considered a science 
up until like the Renaissance, and then, then it became pushed over into the humanities and the arts in a beautiful kind of poetic way for much of human history. It was thought that the universe was guided by music, which is maybe we should rethink that idea. So here's how to here's how to make it in music. And by the way, here's why you ought to be interested in music, I guess. <laughs> a little bit, yeah. Do you ever, as you're listening to pop music, do you ever say, oh, I see a little of my DNA in this young person's work? Not a, the The embarrassing part is I find that I don't notice that right away. My, a friend will point it out. And it'll be embarrassing because it'll be like, well, oh, okay, that's why I like that group so much. Oh, <laughs> I get that, yeah. <laughs> David Byrne, thank you so much for coming in today. Thank you. Yeah, that was fun. I spoke with David Byrne in 2012. His show, American Utopia, starts performances at the Hudson Theater in New York on October 4th. Thanks for listening, and you can subscribe to Studio 360 wherever you get podcasts.